Hello. Today in the Loopcast, I have Shardon Murray and Samantha Kuttner, and we're kind of doing something new here where we, uh, it's a crossover episode. So it's uh, the Loopcast and Glitter Pill, which is uh, Samantha's project and, and podcast. And we're kind of, today we're going to be all over the place, but I think <laughs> the theme in our conversation will be um, how to understand and how to gauge a success of an extremist group or an extremist ideology. So uh, on the show, uh, we have been kind of noodling on this idea of uh, making the extreme normal, normalizing extremism. And uh, this has kind of been, in my own research, a problem that I've been grappling with, which is, um, are there historic parallels? Are there parallels in the uh, theoretical literature? You know, is there any sort of body of work that points us to when you take extremism and you make it normal, that is, you make it a facet of everyday life? And I, I think for me, it's, I'm going to focus on the U.S. tradition, but of course, you're never actually, you were never limited to just America and we can kind of explore around. So with all that being said, uh, please welcome my two guests. How's it going? Great. How are you? Pretty good. Yeah, it's going, it's going well. Lots of work, which is good or bad. I don't know. I think like sometimes <laughs> we would rather our jobs didn't exist, but we're all here and at least we're here together. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I want to maybe start off with Sam, you posed an interesting question in our group chat before the show, which was um, understanding the rubrics of success. Like, would we, how do we think about success? How do we, you know, measure it, set a metric to it, you know, for lack of a better phrase, rate, rate the success. Like it's, it's like a, a website where you can click on something, but, um, but how do we, approach the problem of gauging, you know, the success of, you know, extremist groups of extremist ideologies? I think the ability to misdirect people is something that Chardon and I are uniquely sensitive to and got even more intimate with as we consolidated the various data sets uh, for um, our expert testimony, which helped support investigations. We just like assisted them the way that we could. Um, and Proud Boys have this remarkable ability to like hide in plain sight. And one of the ways to measure success would be the reception to their activities. So um, the recent events at Penn State would be a perfect example of students using their First Amendment rights to protest against um, people call him a provocateur, people mistakenly call him a comedian. It's more accurate to call Gavin McGinnis a far-right ideologue. Um, but people were organizing, showing up, peacefully protesting, and some of them were tear gassed. There's video from, uh, I think his first name is Zach. Uh, I think it's like Zach Vizu News or something. There's video evidence showing that um, students at Penn State were tear gassed and uh, not tear gassed, sorry, uh, <laughs> but they uh, uh, bear maced. And 
not only was the event canceled, but New York Times and other media outlets were ambiguous and irresponsible with the way that 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 story happened. And it, the the narrative became the event was canceled because the students were protesting without attributing the violence to the far right instigators and provocateurs and aggressors. And um, the other thing that happened was uh, a fourth degree Proud Boy at UC Davis, who has a history of documented violence, also uh, disrupted an event uh, on campus. There was a Turning Point USA event and um, tried to frame the, uh, the conversation as you know, these anti-fascists are violent and they do not believe in free speech. Um, and the willingness to entertain the, the disinformation and propaganda of the far right has increased exponentially since, you know, Proud Boys aren't the causal, like they're not the sole force behind the disinformation, but they have paved the way for us to have a numbness to it in a way that makes us less willing to actually do something about it and um, less willing to take ownership of our rage. So I think that what we have endured over the years of like coordinated disinformation campaigns, conspiracy theories, targeted harassment, violence, a lot of us are so used to these new standards that are being set. Um, part of the success of the organization, uh, organization is like crafting those standards and setting setting that stage. Um, so that's one way of looking at it. Yeah, I, I I would just like to jump in and say that I I prefer to call him a failed comedian. But, <laughs> um, you know, when when you're talking about things like uh, like the Penn State uh, issue, um, there's really, you know, you know, the term there's no such thing as bad press. Right. Um, and so what this ended up doing was this, uh, you know, what if he'd ha had the chance to speak, then that would have worked to his benefit um, because it was shut down. It still works to his benefit because that fits in with that whole sort of victimhood narrative and and also that narrative that, you know, oh, well, we're we're quieting free speech um, and and to to, you know, hone in on this this concept of of what's what metric do we use to determine whether extremism or, or, you know, how successful extremist narratives or extremist groups are? I mean, you know, uh, I, I, I really think the, the idea of normalizing it and mainstreaming it and making it something that people just accept as normal is, is probably a pretty good metric. Um, and, and we're, we're, continuing to go further we've been doing this way before uh proud boys or even trump we've been doing this for a very long period of time and we continue on this pathway of you know uh, moving the goalposts between what is and is not acceptable that's kind of interesting and i want you to kind of continue on that because like in my mind, there's there has to be a difference or there is a difference between what we accept and what we're desensitized to. So like like somebody might not be able to ex accept the nationalism or the chauvinism of the Proud Boys, 
but they're desensitized to it. They kind of just say shrug. Um, and, and so from a kind of your perspective, can you explore that for us? Like what, is there a line between an individual accepting the far right and extremist ideas and just being like, whatever, being that kind of quiet middle or that kind of disinterested political middle, so to speak? I think, I mean, I, I think that's a really good point, you know, that there, there is a distinction between, you know, acceptance, you know, like, um, uh, explicit acceptance and, and just sort of silence, uh, resignation, or, you know, it doesn't matter to me, uh, or, you know, like you said, shrug. Um, but, uh, I mean, when, when you look throughout history, we've, we've, we've seen this, you know, forever, essentially. Um, you know, there's, uh, I'm a criminologist and there's a, uh, criminologist sociologist named Robert Merton. And he, um, in the, the, 30s, 40s, somewhere around there, um, he, uh, you know, uh, started to kind of uh, chart the difference between different types of bigots, you know, so there's bigots that are silent, you know, that don't uh, actively, you know, speak about their bigotry, and then there's those that are loud. Um, and, um, you know, I think what we've seen, um, and and like, as I said, this this started before Trump, and in a way, I believe it kind of enabled Trump's rise. Uh, you know, these these dog whistles, um, you know, that have now become bullhorns. Um, but it it is this it, it, with Trump, we really saw this this huge increase in the in 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 really mainstream acceptance. You know, um, people, you know. Uh, uh, parroting some of those same terms um you know treating it as though this is something you know that on on the right or, or uh you know on right-wing media that this is just something that is is accepted as fact that kind of thing um you know it, it, it you're always going to have the silent bigots you're always going to have the people who are silently accepting and then the people who just don't care because it doesn't impact them um, but we're definitely getting more to the loud, uh, in-your-face, open uh, expressions of extremist views and beliefs that, you know, certainly would not have been acceptable in the past. And I think the best example of that in recent years might be the Great Replacement Theory. I find that kind of fascinating that you mentioned the Great Replacement Theory because that's come up in a show that we're going to publish with mm. on decoding Fox news and Ooh. Oh, Juliet with Juliet. It's, yeah. uh, it's really thanks to Sam who introduced me to Juliet's work. Um, but it, like something that caught my ear was she mentioned that Pat Buchanan in mm. 2002 had been talking about the great replacement theory in his book, yes. um, which kind of, <laughs> Which My is dad? one of the three one of the three books that the Proud Boys consider to be um, uh, required reading. Pat Buchanan. Mm -hmm. Yep, the, oh, the wow. Death of the West. That's one of the three. That's History, interesting. Right? Yeah, they're saying the West created. Oh God, I'm not trying to espouse extremist talking points, but the logic <laughs> is so. I don't know if we're allowed to curse, so I'll, I'll contain myself. But uh, it's so messed up. Um, in, in Death of the West, one of the things that they were using were passages that's like the West, uh, created slavery, but it abolished slavery. And I remember 
engaging with Proud Boys on Twitter who were saying things like listing all the accomplishments of uh, white men, just regurgitating it. And I'm like, oh, you haven't done much thought. It's kind of like they need the intellectual veneer over what is like muscle memory in place of a thought process. Yeah. No, it gives them it gives them the feeling that they have some there's some legitimacy to what they say. And I mean, it, Pat Buchanan has has been seen for uh, I mean, I mean, I'm I'm 40 and I remember the first time he ran like for president that everybody was just like kind of rolling their eyes like he's just the the crazy sort of extremist candidate, you know, and um and 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 so he's been espousing these kinds of views for a very long time, but the the increase of uh people who are are saying this you know um explicitly openly and frequently um and the support that they are getting on you know uh, right-wing media and you know we're seeing the support also in polling uh, it definitely shows that there's there's more of a shift this way and I mean, really, when we're talking about the great replacement theory, there's uh, there's not a lot of daylight between that and, um, you know, uh, international Jewish conspiracy and and the 14 words. Right. Right, because we're obviously behind everything in changing racial demographics in the country to emasculate the white male. Oh, totally. I mean, I mean, it goes from Pat Buchanan goes from the fringe. Mm-hmm. to Tucker Carlson. And I'm kind of curious, like, I mean, if both the Proud Boys and Tucker Carlson are kind of espousing the same ideas, it seems like Tucker Carlson has more influence. And I don't know if that's tied to his audience. It's, it probably is. But I mean, could we maybe compare and contrast those two? I mean, it seems not only are we talking about audience size, but kind of the use of physical violence, that the Proud Boys are kind of using physical violence, whereas Tucker Carlson is just using speech. So when we talk about mainstreaming and normalizing, you know, let's talk about violence. I mean, does violence kind of make a difference to how a normie kind of takes up something or the threat of violence? Well, language can incite violence. And therefore, it, it is, in my opinion, uh, just my gut instinct tells me that it is in, like language can be inherently violent for what it is calling people to do, not just Trump stand back and stand by comments, but things like Tucker Carlson being celebrated in accelerationist circles where they put like the, the skull mask and stuff on him and, you know, saying stuff like based and you know, championing him because he spreads their talking points. He has a, you know, Proud Boys are information launderers and Tucker Carlson's just kind of the next tier up when it comes to what can be misinterpreted as legacy media, but is really the propaganda arm of the conservative wing um, at this point or always, I don't know. Um, uh, so uh, Proud Boys are information launderers that take stuff from the like the innards of 4chan and Telegram and encrypted platforms. And they try to make it stylized. They try to make it popular. They try to get things viral. They try to get things circulating. They love manipulating media. And they also interface with mainstream conservatives and mainstream conservatives embrace or watch Fox News. Trump himself was uh, said to 
religiously watch Fox and Friends and like have that inform his policy because we're living in uh we were we are living in these insane times um and so it it all works as an ecosystem and different things move up the chain down the chain they go viral they try to spread out crowd boys are all about maximizing their visibility and gaining legitimacy they do it through figures like tucker carlson and figures like disgraced military general flynn who has mm -hmm. a christian compound in sarasota florida and is providing weapons training to kids as young as six years old i mean it feels like everything i have tried to say or explain recently like i feel a bit like i'm gaslighting myself because this is where we're at <laughs> you know like yeah this is happening and people are like oh or they're too exhausted to yeah. You know, it might be that. Well, you know, and and to to go back to that concept of language, right? You know, language. It, it, I I would argue, and I'm not the only one. I mean, that language is a necessary component for violence. You know, uh, you know. So, for example, uh, when you look at the um, uh, the 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 ten stages of genocide, um, the it begins with language. You know that that. Um, that that whole process of leading to the most extreme of of you know sanctions uh, against a group um, is dehumanizing language um, and, and using language. I mean, uh, language is the again. There's not a lot of daylight between and just language and the actions of people. People will take those actions, um, you know. Uh, 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 much farther as we have seen and and Tucker Carlson himself I mean he he had television shows where he was less of a you know did less parroting of white supremacist um you know and uh you know sort of white nationalist language and uh you know they got they got shut down you know and crossfire back in the day you know he was famously shut down by um um by uh uh john stewart yeah uh, and so he's learned over the years that you know trying to moderate or trying to like you know find some kind of uh, middle ground that that's not what makes money that's not what gets your show that keeps your show on tv what keeps your show on tv and what keeps uh those ratings is is anger you know and fear um and and that's because i mean fear is like a cheat code to get to people's emotions you're going to have more people pay attention and so you know i mean it's the the reason that he has has um you know increasingly sort of used a lot of this language and it's also the same reason that right after the uh january 6th thing uh fox january 6th thing the insurrection um right after that fox news um you know kind of backed off some of that support and started to lose uh, all of these ratings to more extreme networks and so you know they're like well uh, we got to make the money somehow so you know they went right back to it that's interesting because it seems there's a line now between kind of verbal violence or kind of incitement and physical violence and that line is drawn by law enforcement, I guess, because thinking about the Proud Boys, like 
they they have gone to jail or the one six example of people being arrested and going to jail for their violent per- participation but people like Tucker Carlson or Gavin McGinnis or Innis I don't know how to pronounce it um it's okay who, you can mispronounce it all you want <laughs> <laughs> the failed comedian um <laughs> there seems to be that that there's a line there right and it's and that line is defined by law enforcement so I'm curious, like for an extremist group, like how much do you tow that line? And then is there a decision to cross over? And does that make them, does that lessen their chances for success? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I would, I don't want to, I don't want to jump over you. You can go first. No, no, I got the wheels spinning. You go, Sharda. Okay. Um, you know, uh, one of the things that we've seen with a lot of uh, a, with a lot of the the groups that we follow, and 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 every one of these groups, uh, you know, they're they're slightly different because they, especially post January sixth, they very much moved towards more of a localized focus and sort of a local locus of control. But um, what a, a lot of them will engage in is, you know, um, they'll they'll speak more carefully um and and use their words very carefully and use their framing very carefully uh when they think that you know uh other people are looking uh and then of course moderate uh, you know they, that all that moderation of language goes away uh when they think they're talking to people who are like-minded um and and it's 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 clearly a um a, an intentional sort of decision that they're making um and and it's common with a lot of extremist groups especially in sort of this this 4chan and like post gamergate era where they will start off with things that are uh, a little transgressive you know uh that are m- maybe a joke that are meant to be funny um and this is not just the proud boys this this is a lot of the sort of um extremism that's tied to 4chan and that kind of thing. Uh, and, and and what that'll do is that kind of desensitizes people and it, it you know, that are, are in, in you know, uh, reading this or watching this or hearing it or whatever. Uh, and, and then they just keep bumping it up a little bit, you know, um, they'll push the envelope a little bit more and then they'll push the envelope a little bit more. And the more that they push that envelope, they're going to, they're going to lose some people. Uh, because they're like, okay, this is my line, you know, uh, this is too far. Um, but what eventually will happen is they'll funnel down the people until they get to those real extreme folks uh, that, um, you know, that are, are uh, you know, supportive of violence uh, and supporting of, of their, their tactics of intimidation. Uh, and in some of the monitoring of uh, chats that I've seen, um uh you know where they've interacted with um folks that are definitely on the fringe of um of uh, right-wing beliefs they will look for the people who uh who say the most sort of violent things you know who are the the most angry uh who who start talking about wanting to to have a revolution or you know um um we've we've gotten weak since the founding fathers and all that kind of stuff and then they'll kind of reach out to them and be like hey we should have lunch um because they're looking for that recruitment they know that there's power in numbers uh and the best way to recruit isn't to throw out your craziest stuff first it's like going out on a first date and 
you know, uh, dropping all your baggage, you know, you want to pull people in a little bit first, you know, before you, <laughs> you start dropping baggage, uh, because otherwise you'll scare them away. Um, and so little by little, more and more transgressive, they'll, they'll get, and they'll find the people that they know are, are willing, uh, to go, uh, where they, where they are essentially. That's wild because you've just described, I think, the Republican or I shouldn't say the Republican Party, but the right of the last 20 years. Like you like we've already mentioned that Pat Buchanan was kind of a nutter. He was kind of a crazy person in 2002. Now, suddenly his views are mainstreamed. And I I, kind of want you to explore this idea of, you know, reception to their activity and getting rid of baggage. When we talk about baggage in mainstreaming extremism, what are we talking about? Because, you know, Pat Buchanan was crazy 20 years ago. Now everybody is echoing his talking points. Uh, when David Duke ran for Senate in Louisiana, all he did was take off the hood and echo Reagan talking points. And people were kind of chill with David Duke um, <laughs> in a weird way. Yeah. Um, but I'm curious if you, if both of you can kind of explore this idea of, you know, baggage, what is baggage in this case? And, you know, does the removal of that kind of baggage, however defined, make it easier to normalize extremist ideas? Yes. Um, so coded, sanitized language, being mindful of optics, being easily humiliated, which, you know, some people could argue Proud Boys naturally do. And others can say that there are people who are more strategic about it um, because when the heat is on them, they tend to default to inane things. The more inane, the better. I remember Enrique Tarrio in 2019, before he started doing the trial runs of uh, intimidation campaigns at the local level, dressed uh as a giant penis at a woman's march, right? Um, what is different is, and this is- Which is kind of objectively funny, but also it wrong. It is, you know I mean? and that's the thing. So that's the thing, it's like humor, humor breaks down barriers, right? And humor can be cathartic, but humor can also desensitize you. And the way and that provides, problems differ. Mm -hmm. And it provides plausible deniability. Exactly. Just a joke, just joking. That came up so much in the qualitative data with Proud Boys that became its own distinct category. Um, you know, you don't have a sense of humor, just joking, just joking, free speech, free speech, you know, all that stuff. Um, the the baggage is there, but there's this kind of like irony poisoning with individuals who want the sense of brotherhood and camaraderie. Proud Boys have tried to frame themselves, uh, at least Gavin McGinnis, when he was the leader, which is debatable, like the extent of his involvement now, if he's not, if he is. Um, he tried to frame it as the Elks Lodge. And the Elks Lodge said, you know, like, we want, uh, to the best of my knowledge, I believe that they vehemently disavowed Proud Boys. However, um, the the image of being a men's group where men support men, uh, it, it doesn't happen that way. So the the baggage that I've seen from the Proud Boys who over the years I've helped facilitate the disengagement of is 
wanting brotherhood and camaraderie, uh, having some major experience in their life where they're raw and they, they're looking for guidance or support. And they find these groups that say, you know, like, it's not you, all women are like this, come to our side. Or they recruit veterans, which is particularly hard to see because um, they a lot of veterans do not get the proper support that they need and uh, do not know how to ask for help and are sometimes disincentivized for asking for help because then it could deter their like mission readiness uh, and uh, or like if they ever decide to deploy again and they get recruited and slowly disconnect their sense of humanity it's you know like the the title for the uh, international center for counterterrorism studies in the hague i had to fight for that title calling it swiping right um because it's it's a casual endorsement as for at first you never fully like you said on the first date you don't go into your entire relational history or trauma <laughs> background and this is why i'm like this oh and i study tarot did i tell you i study tarot like <laughs> <laughs> like you don't give them the whole play-by-play -play everything because you know like you need to cultivate or would like to cultivate intimacy but with malevolent actors with proud boys who are conscious of their manipulations and want to pull people in they can't show their side that much at first so they pull them in they bring them to these groups and then by virtue of their telegram chats and other spaces that they operate in they desensitize themselves so the baggage is disconnecting from their own humanity despite wanting to belong or joining belonging and selling this them this idea that's not true and just kind of makes them very malleable for whoever is at the upper tier steering them in direction and throwing them against you know targets or inserting them into political spaces So maybe I want to explore that a bit, the, this idea of cultivating connections and connections, because you you make this like you hit on this interesting point, Samantha, about how the Proud Boys kind of pass themselves off or were trying to pass themselves off as a brotherhood organization like the Mason Lodge, the Elk Lodge. Um, could we maybe kind of dig deeper to the kind of theoretical roots? I mean, is that is this idea of creating connection and cultivating connection basically how they want to create an in-group and not in-group identity or, you know, in, in sort of the Proud Boys kind of reference, what does that sort of connection do? Is it really, you know, to build, you know, a group identity? What is happening there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is absolutely about... Uh, you know, uh, clearly defining the in-group and, and you know, uh, bringing people in and allowing them the ability to connect to other people that make them feel important, um, you know, that give them that, that type of connection, uh, that type of belonging. Um, and, and, you know, uh, we, we have a ton of research um, that that looks at these mechanisms. This is this is a common mechanism in, uh, you know, terrorist groups, extremist groups, cults. You know, it, you you build that kind of belonging and you build that in group identity. Uh, it becomes 
so important to who they are. It makes it hard to leave and it makes it really easy for them to hate and dehumanize and eventually sort of be desensitized to hostile action or violence even to to kind of um, uh, crib off of uh, Berger's extremism definition. You know, it, it, it makes people uh, more amenable to that. Um, uh, one of the things that is is often quite misunderstood about terrorist groups is that it's it's easy for people to be drawn in, even if they're if they're not all that particularly ideologically, um, you know, all in. Uh, they they may be drawn to the group first. They may be drawn to that membership, that belonging first, and then uh, the more that they are in a group, uh, the more they identify with the group um, and identify with their groups enemies with the out group that they target um you know then the you know that's that's what makes them engage that's what makes them it, it continue to be uh part of that group um and the longer we're in a group the more that we adopt the group's norms values and beliefs but does that limit its success though because i think of I think of like in my head, I compare the first clan and the second clan and the mm. second clan, when they were building an in-group identity, they made it so broad, right? As long as you're Protestant, uh, somewhat white, not black, not Chinese, you're, you're a cool dude. Um, that, that was kind of the recruitment strategy of the second clan. And the first clan was just like straight up, you know, you know, violent and reactionary and murderous. So I wonder if the creation of that in-group, you know, determines the success or failure of that extremist movement or how it, maybe another way to look at it is, does the creation of the in-group determine how it succeeds or how it fails? Well, I, mean, I think the creation of the in-group determines whether it's an extremist group or not, you know, um, and I mean, any extremist group is going to to have the, those very clear sorts of definitions. And then, of course, that brings up the question of, you know, how do we measure success? Um, you know, uh, is 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 uh, the success of a, an extremist belief system tied to getting that adopted by uh, mainstream uh, America to the, you know, or mainstream politicians, mainstream governments, mainstream society. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I really think that you're really hitting on something with that second wave of the, um, uh, uh, the KKK, um, because it, it was a really good representation of how they became extreme. And that extremism was accepted and even rewarded by mainstream politicians. I mean, uh, Woodrow Wilson gave them diplomatic license plates uh, for their for their cars so that they could park anywhere and get out of trouble. Um, that's Amazing. you know that's I mean uh, yeah. Um, I but I think I I think I actually jumped over Sam. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, you're so you're so good. Um, so uh, the creation. So because I study the gender dynamics of radicalization, um, seeing misogyny as the unifying force that really holds the disparate elements of the extremist groups together, um, and seeing how misogyny is intertwined with anti-Semitism and racism and anti-immigrant sentiments. 
when you frame things, and I say this far more articulately in uh, articulately in the International Center for Counterterrorism, Counterterrorism Studies in the Hague, I cannot talk today. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I describe the concept of negative precarity uh, and the feeling that one is at risk of losing something. And when you can appeal to the idea that not only is your race suffering, but your manhood is being challenged, you will engage in a host of behaviors that affirm that you know, you are in fact this Uberman, you know, and then most people can see from a mile away when someone is engaging in the aggressive overperformance of masculinity that it is really covering like someone who is deeply conflicted about their own sexuality, uh, not necessarily like being gay, straight, queer, any of those things, but you know, like what does it mean to be in a man, uh, like a man in a society where uh, capitalism makes you completely expendable. You can't necessarily care for um, women when the gender roles say that you're supposed to be a provider. Um, and uh, when people talk about toxic masculinity, if they're still talking about that anymore, um, <laughs> I got to go to a university where people were doing their PhDs on the topic of top, to uh, toxic masculinity, but it was it's really a subset of gender role strain um like this discrepancy between what you what society says you should do as a man and what you actually might want to do um and there is so much in that space that can be exploited like if you are not obviously like proud boys exist because of the inability to look inward right <laughs> i mean that if you don't do the inner work to reconcile this discrepancy between how you really are and how you want to move in the world and what society says you should be like, you're going to be deeply conflicted and deeply malleable and deeply um, exploitable by people who can appeal to that in various ways. So the way that um, Gavin McGinnis did it is he started talking about sexuality and uh, all the chest beating stuff. And then progressively said, you know, started doing things like universities are being emasculated more or less with all these social justice warriors who are coming in and spreading social Marxism and blah, blah, blah. And all the buzzwords are meaningless because what they touch on is that misogynistic core. So Proud Boys going to antagonize protesters seems incredibly cruel from the outside. But when you factor in group dynamics, it becomes this identity affirming act. And we haven't sufficiently addressed gender supremacy in mainstream politics, in the spaces that we're in. We're still fighting for the radical notion of equality as women and trans people and members of the queer community. Um, we don't have the level of support that we need. And there are people who kind of appeal to the misogyny and patriarchy that's kind of as American as apple pie. What's not American is presenting as being a patriot while being completely opposed to the idea of democracy. And I think about that stereotypical image of the guy that has like truck nuts on his car and there's usually some type of like Punisher skull mask flag on the back and all kinds of things. It's like, you know, people Calvin like, and Hobbes peeing on like exactly. a Ford logo. Yeah. Um, the, uh, one of my friends called it people like getting their personality sold back to them. Uh, you know, like 
if people can distill you down to what like they think they have you pegged, not only can they radicalize you, they can sell you products. So there's like a really terrible space that we're in right now on social media where like these divide and conquer strategies and the in-group dynamics are like good from a marketing perspective because marketing can be fairly evil and also terrible for democracy because where do you go when you have someone sufficiently, you know, like narrowed enough where like, oh, if you like this, you might like this. If you like this narrative, you might like this narrative. If you like this narrative, you might believe the election was stolen. If you believe the election was stolen, you might go fight vehemently against it. Don't forget to buy your tactical gear. You know, like it's 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 like a weird, like, I don't want to call extremism or extremist recruitment a form of marketing, but it kind of is. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when we're talking to about, you know, these these ways that, you know, we measure success and this moving into the mainstream, you know, uh, what a lot of the those kinds of messages that resonate with people, this fear of losing something, those those tend to resonate with people and and kind of always have, you know, um, there's an old. Uh, another old criminological theory um, called, or it's not that old, but it's called general strain theory, where, you know, you experience strain when you have these expectations and you can't meet those expectations. And when you have something that you want to keep and you feel like you're losing it. Um, And so, you know, that strain can cause people to do all kinds of crazy adaptations uh, that may be deviant or criminal just because they, they feel like, you know, they're, um, their, their livelihoods, uh, their, their lives, uh, you know, their, their, their very masculinity is at risk, you know, um, and, and that's necessary for extremist groups. They have to make you feel like you are in crisis because otherwise you will not justify these calls to action that are necessary to deal with that crisis, according to those extremist groups. And, you know, in terms of, of some of the things that we're seeing, you know, with the the mainstreaming it's not just you know tucker carlson uh it's not just the the uh random sort of statement from a politician here and there we have extremists who are running for local office um you know the proud boys essentially have partially taken over part of southern florida um there are you know folks with you know increasingly sort of extreme views um that are uh, you know, that, that are active um, in, in local politics, uh, people who, who, like I said, are actually running for office and are directly working with the Proud Boys and, and kind of calling them, you know, our patriots and things like that, because they believe that what they're doing is a good thing and they support that. Um, you know, you have uh, people who are working for um, political parties who are, are, you know, calling them in and asking them to be uh, involved because it it helps spread their own uh, messages. Uh, and so, I, I mean, I don't know what better metric of success for an extremist belief system, you know, than um, having people who completely 100% buy into it are active in these groups you know, uh, being asked by establishment figures to become poll watchers, you know, or to run for office, and then maybe even being successful at that. 
um, that that blows my mind. And and what we're seeing now with this, you know, now that um, the elections have started and we're starting to see, um, uh, you know, uh, early voting and um, and and you know these these groups are, uh, you know holding uh, screenings of 2000 mules and and pulling in extremists with other people who may just be sort of activated and in more of the fringe right um and you know coming to intentionally intimidate because they believe that if they don't do this then the election will be stolen again it, you know we're in a really precarious kind of position right now and um uh i mean <laughs> I mean that you know this is we we already have a whole bunch of things across the country where we're seeing voter intimidation um and that's just going to get worse. Yes, and there's one deeper layer I want to add to proud boys running in elections because we have been tracking them we haven't been able to track them the past couple months or so because life has gotten insane. <laughs> Uh, but uh, the majority of Proud Boys presidential, or presidential, oh, please no, uh, <laughs> local campaigns were not successful. They weren't supported. They were condemned. The GOP saying, hey, like, you know, like, if you have a, a girlfriend that you're dating, and then someone that you cheated on, like, with comes along, and they're like, hey, do you remember me? And they're like, oh, get please no, like, I don't know this person. I really like, that's kind of what the conservatives are doing to the Proud Boys. Like they'll use them, but when it comes down to optics decisions, they know, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, like Milo Leonopoulos was a staffer for her or some type of intern for maybe a month and is no longer. Um, but anyway, um, when you think about the the campaigns, this is like another thing I want to tie eventually if we have time. Um, the success of Proud Boys is contingent on their visibility. It doesn't matter if they run or win in local elections as much as they get around or evade social media bans. Because if major publications are talking about them, they're still more or less on social media platforms. And they can still, still getting their, and they're still getting their message across. I mean, this was mm -hmm. a tactic back in the white citizens councils back in the the desegregation era. They would run candidates, and whether the candidates won or not, it, for the school board, uh, you know, and whether those candidates ran won or not, which they sometimes did, uh, it, it didn't really matter so much because if they didn't win, then at least they got the message out. And oftentimes they would kind of pull more centrist figures or establishment figures further to the fringe in order to kind of compete with them. Uh, and so, you know, changing the narrative itself is something of a success. I mean, these are not really like sort of quantifiable, like, you know, quantitative measures of success, but, uh, you know, qualitatively, you know, that's success. Yeah. And with Penn State, uh, there was a racial justice center that was forming and they made the decision after this incident to not fund it and effectively squash it before it began. 
a similar thing happened to uh so much has happened this year my god but there was a there was a misinformation task force and uh whoever was one of trump's right hand like media figures uh beady beetles something like that um he he started circulating narratives and was very strategic about circulating narratives about this uh this nebulous entity that was going to control everything and it was people fighting misinformation it was it were it were trusted intelligence experts in the field fighting disinformation and influence operations campaigns they were mass harassed out of that being a functioning sustainable enterprise so one of the successes or measures of success of a terrorist entity is like how many institutions and programs and organizations committed to accountability can be squashed? When Gavin McGinnis attempted to sue the Southern Poverty Law Center, people saw the spectacle of it. He dressed as a plantation owner when he did it. He was very deliberate with the way that he dresses. Like, like he does that as part of his stuff. But this is lawfare and people aren't calling it what it is. And it is a tactic being deployed to not just silence dissent, but silence people, stop people from holding Proud Boys and other extremist groups accountable so they can continue fascist campaigns of terrorism, intimidation, and or political violence. Yep. So it seems like we're, we're circling around this idea of incentives that, you know, it, it, if there are incentives for an extremist group to exist, and then there's incentives for them to be successful, and there's, you know, this whole system. So I, I'm kind of curious if we, if we can maybe step back and look at what kind of incentivizes these extremist organizations. Like, why why do the Proud Boys think they can run and, and be somewhat successful in local Florida races or Marjorie Taylor Greene is one of the largest fundraisers of the Republican Party right now. So I, I'm sort of curious if we can examine this idea of the underlying incentives to be extreme and to sort of uh, propagate an extremist idea or set of ideas. There's going to be a different set of incentives for individuals like on the micro level than there will be for the group. Um, but, you know, there, there certainly is, you know, there are incentives to them and there are incentives as well to the more establishment folks that, um, work with them, you know, um, it, it, it's kind of an extreme, you know, for the establishment folks, it's kind of an extreme version of how, you know, you're supposed to get a vice presidential candidate to be your attack dog so that the pres the presidential candidate can kind of, uh, you know, be above all of that. Um, by uh, being an establishment figure and getting the the more extreme folks to do the dirty work, to say the a little bit more extreme things, um, you know, you get them to kind of go after your enemies and, and that takes the, the pressure off of you. Um, there's incentives for the group themselves, just in terms of, of you know, uh, remaining relevance. Um, you know, the leaders of the group, uh, you know, the, they they uh, have have cultivated um, really important connections uh, to uh, other groups and to, um, you know, uh, 
figures that fund um, a lot of these, um, you know, sort of uh, post Citizens United kind of campaigns and super PACs. Um, they, they get a lot of uh, benefits uh, from that. And then, you know, the incentives for the individual are, you know, a, a group membership. And, and a lot of them really, you know, they have come to believe that their way of life and and what they think is important is under attack, and so it it, it gives them uh, this sense of um, you know of being able to do something about it. You know, like um, you know, I, I I'm striking back against the things that are tearing um, you know uh, my society away or or my humanity away or whatever. Um, and and. And so there's a lot of of you know kind of overlapping incentives um, that creates this this system where you have uh, people funding it, you have people supporting it, but not publicly. Uh, you know, and you have uh, people who are are capitalizing on the fears of parents. Um, you know, with this whole grooming stuff. Um, you know, you, you they're the Proud Boys, for example, are really great at sort of being opportunistic and. Uh, you know, jumping on to whatever uh, topic is the, you know, whatever the big boogeyman of the day is. Um, and and it allows them to kind of present themselves, um, you know, both as a group and as an individual to present themselves as uh, as people who are tough enough and strong enough and uh, are willing to sacrifice enough to do something about the problems in this world. Um, uh, and, and, and so it, it gives them this sense that, you know, it's, it's the quest for significance. Right. Um, and so that's what I would say. Some of those incentives, uh, what do you think about that, Sam? So I went back to the timeline of blended operations and key events leading up to January 6th in our Khalifa Eiler report. And I think removing barriers was an incentive. One of the mm. first of which was the Citizens United versus the Federal Election Commission. Um, so the U.S. Supreme Court removed nearly all limits on corporations and individuals donating to politicians. Uh, within two years, Rebecca Mercer, daughter of Robert Mercer, joins the nonprofit Government Accountability Institute, uh, you know, nebul nebulous term to deflect from what they're actually doing, uh, founded by Steve Bannon, who later became the campaign strategist or one of the the chief people uh, assisting Trump's presidential campaign so that the removal of barriers to accessing money has incentivized some of the worst most dehumanizing behavior that has resulted in countless violence uh violent incidents and and death and death from neglect by spreading covid disinformation with such uh uh at such an alarming rate with like by the time people were addressing that it had spiraled so far out of control that dying of covid actually could become an identity affirming act and it was, it was pretty tragic to see the videos of why didn't i listen why didn't i listen right like they went that far where like republicans are not beyond getting people to kill themselves because they trust the party will take care of them and they don't trust like medical institutions. What I mean, and, and, and part of extremists and like doing counter narratives and disengagement work is appealing to the legitimate grievances within extremist organizations. Like 
you know, uh, hospital bills are insane. We're still working towards some form of universal health care. If you get sick, you shouldn't be able to, you shouldn't have to go into medical debt for your entire life. Like there are ways to account for and attempt to make society genuinely less miserable for people. And that doesn't include extremism and like preventable deaths be because you don't trust the medical industry it shouldn't at least but you were you were saying sure oh and no i mean they uh when you were talking about uh, some of their rhetoric um my uh, the fav my favorite that always makes me think of harry potter and the whole mudblood thing is they call themselves pure bloods which mm. is yeah i know it's so gross but um, and and the whole reason for that really is that uh, scapegoats are so much easier to deal with. This this uh, these is really sort of black and white simplistic kind of thinking is so much easier to deal with to explain to people. Hey, you know your lives suck or things about your life sucks. Uh, blame these people. That's so much easier than saying, okay, well, we have a system that everybody's used to because it's it's been around since, uh, you know, really post-World War II is when, you know, the the whole idea of, of the work-oriented healthcare came into play, right? Uh, you know, it, it needs a lot of work. It needs a lot of effort. You know, we've got a lot of lobbyists that are, uh, you know, lobbying against it. And, you know, that we have, we'd have to retrain a whole bunch of folks if we were to, to switch the system. That's going to be hard. There's so much nuance in that. Or we can just say, hey, they're lying to you. Uh, and, and here's the scapegoat you can blame for all of your problems. And, and all you have to do is just target this scapegoat. And, and, you know, you'll, you'll be fine. And, and the result is, you know, uh, uh, all, all of this, this trauma, you know, that, that is experienced, because it's not, you know, I mean, up and up to and including death, right? Uh, but I mean, I have a, 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 a friend of mine who is a, a politician, just a local politician, uh, and is also a, a war veteran. And he said that, um, you know, uh, it was so much more traumatic. It's been so much more traumatic being a local politician in a small town uh, than uh, any time in the war zone ever was. Because he said in the war zone, you know who your enemy is. And and, and th this place, you know, there's you, you don't ever know who, who it is, where they are, when they're coming at you. Um, and and. I mean, that's that's a tactic as well, because that's going to run good people uh, out of those positions. We're seeing that with the way that they're targeting election officials, you know, uh, people who are making the right decision for them and their families to to get out of local politics because they're just like, I can't I can't deal with this traumatic experience. I can't deal with people, you know, staking out my house, uh, targeting my children, all of this other kind of stuff. I can't deal with this. So they leave and then that leaves a whole bunch of, um, you know, crazy extremists who are willing to run and aren't going to be targeted the same way because, you know, they're, they're, they're on the take, you know, they're, they're, they're in on the, they're in on the joke. Yeah. And there can be laws against protecting uh, election workers and, and legislators and as aspiring legislators 
But will they be consistently enforced? Will there be regions where it's just kind of this gray area? Uh, will there be, will there actually be a way to standardize holding people accountable for the violence they enact? Um, we're, well, what, less than two weeks in, heading into midterms? And I don't, I don't want to say I don't know, but I, if previous data trends continue, uh, this is going to be an incredibly violent end of the year. It's already been in a violent year. The level, uh, the number of accelerationist terrorist attacks, the the casual embrace of anti-Semitism, the fact that people can put a banner over the 405 saying that Kanye West like really knew knows what's up and and that the reaction started is, on Kanye. The reaction is kind of <laughs> shutting down and that's and that's what they want to feel like you can't do something that you're not capable that you shouldn't try. I guess one of the biggest things with the glitter pill community before we formed glitter pill LLC was showing people that liberatory work can be joyful and steps forward in the right direction, like imperfect action, bad plans even, better than no plan. That's true. Yeah. Interesting. So uh, for my next kind of question, um, it's not so much a question as a challenge. Ooh, uh, <laughs> um, what I want you guys to do is come up with a rubric of success, you know, for gauge, gauging the success of an extremist movement, but you can't use violence. So you can't use terrorism. So you can use narratives, aesthetics, politics, um, finances, but I want to kind of, you know, have you guys discuss and develop as much as you can as much as you want, um, kind of a nonviolent rubric of gauging an extremist's, an extremist movement's success. And then whoever wants to start can start. <laughs> as qualitative people, well, this might be well, a while. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of bridging the gap between qualitative and quantitative, but I, I, we, we have to do this on the fly? I, 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 I didn't, yeah. I didn't, I, mean, I didn't. I didn't know. I didn't. I wasn't prepared for 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 homework uh, in real time. I gotta think about this. Oh. Oh, I've got an idea. Okay. Mm, not violence per se, but behaviorally, the violent denial of diversity. If you show up in a black and yellow Fred Perry polo, in the event of a mass shooting, I mean, I think it's important to mention. Today is the fourth anniversary of the Tree of Life massacre. Uh, if you show up to in a black and yellow Fred Perry polo during a funeral service of Jewish people after they experienced a mass uh, a terrorist attack, one of the the worst, the deadliest attack against Jews on American soil. You show up there. What purpose would you have other than maximizing the suffering of an already traumatized community? 
if you show up in a black and yellow Fred Perry or like Trump did, you insist on giving a speech before the bodies are even in the ground. What are you doing if not enacting a form of violence by other means? I'm trying to think about things that we can, you know, kind of empirically measure. And I think maybe a way to go about it would be to look at, uh, you know, some of the, the measurements for success for, you know, any kind of social movement, right? You know, uh, social movements, uh, I mean, because extremist movements are really no different than uh, any other type of social movement, except for, you know, what they explicitly sort of espouse, you know, but they make claims, uh, uh, you know, uh, as to uh, what the problem is, uh, what the causes are, and what the, you know, the kinds of solutions must be. Um, and, and I, you know, you tend to see this, the, you know, to kind of gauge the, um, uh, the success of these kinds of movements in the sense of, you know, do you start to see the, the, the needle move or the graphs change for public opinion polling? You know, do you start to see, I mean, not just politicians and, and, uh, um, you know, news, uh, folks talking heads, uh, and stuff, you know, uh, parroting your views, but do you start to see that public opinion is beginning to kind of move into, uh, accepting your characterization of what the problems are and who's to blame, uh, and and what you know should and should not be accepted, right? Uh, that that's one way, um, you know, that you could you could uh, kind of get at uh, some of those some of those measurements once once a so and and then uh you know in, in, in for successful social movements that have successfully made claims and have successfully kind of uh, uh brought the public over to their side of things then you know the next step is um you know what is the what is the state what are the official sort of mechanisms of the state what are they going to do right so if you start to see you know um laws passed uh that are addressing those issues if you start to see um uh, you know, if so, for example, you know, we're seeing laws outlawing um, uh, trans uh, uh, kids from getting gender affirming care. Um, you know, those laws are passing throughout the country. Um, we are seeing, um, for example, um, you know, the opinions relating to trans uh, trans individuals in the um, in the United States. We're seeing those you know, kind of flutter in a way that, you know, at, at the same time, we're seeing, you know, uh, uh, folks um, that are, uh, you know, sex, uh, sex uh, um, uh, gay folks, you know, the sexual orientation, the, the other part of LGB, uh, we're starting to see more acceptance of that and less acceptance of trans folks. We're starting to see more laws get passed. Those laws get passed because those narratives are gaining purchase. Those narratives are making sense to people and people are putting pressure on politicians and politicians are following that and are grandstanding on that. And, and so, you know, we could do this, we could measure that success by looking at, you know, their main claims about what the problems are and, and who the in-group and out-group should be. Is the public starting to believe that? 
are they changing their minds? And if they're changing their minds, are they putting pressure on politicians? And if they're putting pressure on their politicians, are those politicians passing laws, you know, uh, that are that are going to that are directly sort of, you know, there's this through line where they are directly connected to those extreme views. Uh, and those are things we can count. Those are things that we can we can measure. Those are things that we, you know, we can see the beginning and end of. We can have a baseline before and after. Um, and I think, you know, um, the acceptance of those narratives um, can be measured in those ways. Um, but that that has to be, you know, the the measure of success. Can you get other people to buy into what you're selling, um, and 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 to the to the degree that it changes. It changes everyone's lives. It changes how, you know, um, how we see the world that we live in. I mean, election denialism, <laughs> you know, um, support for these policies that are more and more and more anti-democratic. Um, that's, I mean, that is, that is how democracies fail. I think can you persuade people to vote against their own interests by appealing to rigid gender identity norms? Can you affect voter turnout through disinformation and conspiracy theories alone? Um, the famous quote, those who can make you believe absurdities can cause you to commit atrocities. Like, what is our threshold for absurdities at this point? Have absurdity, <laughs> like... Have absurdities become so commonplace that it's like, oh yeah, someone's talking about LaRoucheite baby eating outside of a Turning Point USA conference. And well, it is what it is. It's like, no, no, it's not. That's not, none of this is normal. None of this is normal. And we forget that because we've created, extremists have created a new normal and conservatives with their tail between their legs who know that they need to maintain power by appealing to an increasingly more radicalized base are not helping and do not deserve the positions that they are holding. They have and, failed the country. And moderates are not speaking against it. And the people on the left are, well, the people on the left have always been kind of uh, piss poor at uh, counter narratives. Um, oh my God, know. yeah, because they're so busy fighting each other. <laughs> <laughs> that that or they're so busy trying to you know uh, to to get all of the nuance in and and that's not something people have the bandwidth for you know especially when you know there's so many other things going on in people's lives um but yeah i mean we've we've been in rough places before and um we've gotten through it as a country um, and, and I, I hope, uh, you know, I have hope that we will, we'll live to be in rough places and tough places again, uh, you know, uh, 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 uh in the future, you know, um, there's, uh, one of my favorite sort of quotes that I'm, I'm constantly kind of repeating all the time is that, um, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Uh, and you can find parallels for this. Um, I mean, I, I primarily focus on American uh, extremism and uh, uh, terrorism and that kind of thing. And you'd find parallels for this, uh, you know, throughout uh, American history. 
Um, and, and so that is something that, that makes me hopeful that the extremists will not ultimately win. Um, but in order for them to be held accountable, or for, or I'm sorry, for in order for them to not win, uh, it, it requires good people to hold them accountable and you know to 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 debunk these narratives um and and for them to uh you know to to uncover the efforts that they are taking to try and uh you know maintain and and gain more legitimacy they can't we can't allow this to become a legitimate uh you know to to allow those narratives to become legitimate uh these groups to become legitimate uh, and and I mean, I think we lose and they win when the pushback stops. That's interesting to me that you would frame it as winning and losing, because I think I'm, I'm thinking of the Steve Bannon quote of uh, I'm probably butchering it, but it's he said something like politics is downstream from culture. Yes, that is, if you the idea behind that is that if you win the culture war or you have a big enough influence in the culture war, then you are going to inherently win politics. Um, I, I'm sort of curious then, like, culture seems so amorphous, right? We can describe culture via narrative in our rubric, via aesthetic, via politics. But I mean, I guess the core issue here is how, how do we determine a win or loss state or a successful or not successful state? Is it really a matter of, you know, the normies are going to accept uh, white nationalist talking points? You know, what is, I mean, I, I, I just grapple so much with, you know, what is the winning and losing look like? What's because, the win condition? What is the win condition? If this is, you know, if we're kind of relating to our politics through the prism of culture. I think uh, class consciousness and working class solidarity and overcoming class barriers, it has to be part of the win because when people's material conditions improve, they're, I mean, it's just beneficial for society as like, we all inherently deserve proper support and care, but also when life is less miserable for you and you struggle less, you might be less likely to absorb extremist content. Um, and so like if, if institutions are failing people, extremists can exploit that and turn them against government entities because the issues remain unaddressed. There's really no way out of the win without making society genuinely less miserable for people i'm pretty sure bernie who sound just like my gramps said <laughs> i think i might even be quoting him i think he said the exact same thing and he has been i mean if anyone is consistent like culture i guess for not even democrats but you know like beyond politics like winning and preserving democracy and making it genuinely better and working for everyone i think modeling consistency is is one thing because the perception across politics is people say on both 
political, I'm not both sizing this, but, uh, you know, Democrats, Republicans, um, they, they say whatever they say to get into office. They can take the, the juicy talking points from people and really craft this beautiful web of BS. And then when they're in the office, they don't do what they say they're going to do. And they, they fail people, you know, and I think that being consistent in like getting into politics for the right reasons is like way too idealistic because the majority of people who get into political offices, like the motivations for that might not always be and most likely are not pro-social. They're more of a quest for desire for power, right? So it, we have to acknowledge like some of the more collective shadows and get into all the deep Jungian depth psychology stuff, uh, I think, in order to really understand culture and win. Because if Bannon and the esoteric fascists can do it, then people will have a proper um, love of learning can do the same. And love of learning isn't confined to an institution. It's not confined to being able to go to college. A love of learning can be universal. I think that that curiosity and love of learning has to be a part of it as well. Uh, well, I mean, then that's why the first people they target are the academics and the scholars, you know, um, because if you can, and, and the scientists, if you can, uh, if you can convince everyone that they can't be trusted, then, you know, you you have a population you can manipulate in any way that you want. Um, but I, I used to work, uh, I used to be a, um, a state uh, legislative staffer, and I got into it because I was all starry eyed and, and uh, idealistic. And I was like, I'm going to change the world. And, um, <laughs> and I lasted a year uh, and it was hell. And um so when i talk about it uh like when it, it comes up with my students uh one of the things that i gener general general generally say is that people may get into politics because they want to do good things but people don't stay in politics because they want to make a difference because they want to do good things because it is it is a uh, horrible nasty dirty backstabby the worst bullying kind of high schoolish kind of nonsense you you've ever i mean it, it's 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 terrible uh and and good people do not tend to stay in it because you know it, 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 the only the uh desire for power and wealth and resources is go that's going to be the only thing that'll keep you uh, going even when you're targeted when you know you're harassed when you go through all of these things and so you know there, there's a problem with you know with the way that uh, uh, our, our politics operates um, and and so once again we're coming back to uh, to money we're coming back to you know the 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 way that our system is set up in in a way that that benefits um, not just uh, wealthy Americans, for example, but also uh, wealthy nations uh, that can donate in, in all kinds of dark money channels and have. Um, and, and, and so this, if we're going to, if we're going to see uh you know uh truth and and uh, you know the good the good guys win i guess not the extremists but the good guys the good guys and the gals the good folks if we're gonna have them win um then those 
those narratives have to be discounted. Those, um, you know, connections between shadowy networks that are a lot more coordinated and, uh, you know, than a lot of people believe. Um, those things have to be uncovered. Um, but if if we get to the point in our society where people, uh, you know, pe people uh, begin to accept it at, or just give up, you know, um, uh, then then that's that's when we're in trouble, when people stop fighting. Yeah, I also think that the concept of like multiculturalism as the devil or the stand-in for the Jews comes from a place of being fundamentally disconnected to your own culture. So part of the change has to be celebrating cultures and allowing them to coexist and seeing the beauty of that. I mean, as a Jewish salsa dancer, uh, <laughs> people come from all walks of life in this shared pursuit of this beautiful hobby that you never become an expert in. You're always growing. You're always challenging yourself. And you get to appreciate things on such a deeper, more profound level. And people who do not have access to their own culture and traditions are going to be led astray by people who engage in historical revisionism and imbue that with neo-Nazi ideology um or like appeal to like warrior classes to justify violence uh there there has to be a way of celebrating culture and getting in touch with your own i think the biggest thing one of the biggest reasons is in addition to scapegoating that people hate jewish people is we have a portable culture for thousands of years we've been in countries and cities we've been expelled we've had people assume the worst about us but like questioning things having community having a sense of humor because when you have nothing like well my ancestors escaped the pogroms of eastern europe to come to america and they had nothing but they had each other and they had their dark twisted funny sense of humor and that dark twisted funny sense of humor is actually part of american culture and humor and satire and comedy like calling somebody um stupid you wouldn't call somebody stupid in like that comedic jewish way you'd say like all right einstein right like that type of like that type of humor is a cultural contribution america is filled with cultural contributions and some of the most innovative people in the world unfortunately right now some of the most innovative people in the world are the most malevolent and the people who could be innovative are restricted from having the time and space and energy to really push back in a significant way so we have to make things accessible for people uh at the lowest like the lowest common denominator with the least amount of access with least amount of support i think that that will eventually be part of the way forward, but it's definitely not going to happen within the next two weeks. The most innovative people in the world are also the, what, 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 what was it you said? The most innovative people are the most malevolent. Malevolent. Yeah. <coughs> Elon. <coughs> right. <clears throat> How's that robot? Can it walk yet? <laughs> <laughs>
Oh I need goodness. to stop. I don't know what Twitter is going to be like. He said, so like, sorry. He said that he was going to, um, he wasn't going to let it devolve into a cesspool. <laughs> but I feel like that's kind of the the male, like, don't worry, I got this. It'll be okay. It's like, you clearly don't. Like, if anything could be summarized in the field of violent extremism with an emphasis on gender dynamics of radicalization, it would be a man telling a woman that he got this and a woman saying, you clearly don't. <laughs> Sorry, that's um, the glitter pill way of doing things. <laughs> no, I, I think that's that's kind of an interesting segue because we, like in the Elon example, he, he was saying that... Um, he's going to prevent Twitter from being a cesspool because he's talking to the advertisers. Right. Um, and then there's this kind of meme in poli sci where, you know, an extremist organization that enters into politics will moderate their views or give in to the grift and, and sort of collapse either one or the other. But it almost seems like Chardin, uh, you're arguing that like entry into politics is actually a marker of success, right? Like if, if Marjorie Taylor Greene has, using her rhetoric, is able to convince the, you know, a district in Georgia that she needs to be in the House, then really, you know, we as anti-fascists or anti-racists have failed and, you know, kind of the fascist, authoritarian, whatever you want to call them, have succeeded. So I, I, I'm curious if we can kind of explore this idea of entry into politics? Is it a marker of success? Is it a marker of failure? Is it a marker of eventual failure or eventual sort of portends to, you know, more success, I guess? Well, you know, I, Marjorie Taylor Greene, I mean, we've had, we've had crazy folks in, in politics, uh, crazy, completely, uh, you know, uh, irresponsible, um, you know, uh, folks that are not qualified in politics forever. Um, you know, uh, the, the, the difference is, you know, this, this sort of movement of more of them into mainstream politics, while there is also the movement of others that are more measured, uh, uh, you know, uh, logical, um you know uh, moderate even maybe moving out you know uh, what 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 a lot of this especially when we're talking about politics what a lot of this really comes down to is this sort of in, you know in, in increase in uh, gerrymandering especially in these these uh these smaller districts where uh, you can get the most extreme folks uh possible uh elected because you you're only you know, drawing this crazy map that only pulls in those folks. Uh, and so that means more of them are elected. And, and you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, she had a lot of her things stripped. She can still, you know, talk and 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 stuff. But she she's, aside from just her vote, uh, you know, a lot of her power is gone. Um, but a few years ago, Steve King was saying crazy stuff and he ended up getting, you know, uh, removed all altogether, all right? But so- I mean, I'm sorry. I, I mean, I just want to push back a bit on that because yeah. Steve King wasn't raising $5 million a quarter. And I don't, and I think. But who from? Exactly. So I think like a lot of that is 
like for me at least, it, it's so difficult to have that direct relationship. You know, she's raising $5 million a quarter, but it's obviously not from her constituents because I think you you already pointed out she doesn't have any committee placements. She, to my, as far as I know, is not a prolific writer of laws and proposals. <laughs> so, Sorry. I mean, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm noodling on this fact that she's raising $5 million a quarter. So she's still kind of an asset to the Republican Party, but at the same time, like, doesn't serve her constituents. So I wonder, you know, how does that work in, in our sort of democratic system, I guess? Well, we, you know, it's not really a democracy when you have the politicians choosing their voters. And, and that's what they've done with her district and a whole bunch of other ones, right? Uh, and and so, you know, she she, because of that and because of her high profile, she can still be an asset but what's really going to be the problem is when we have the exodus of people who are willing to work uh, for, you know, uh, uh, like a, at least more utilitarian types of things or are willing to push back on the, you know, the most extreme sorts of narratives that are increasingly finding their way into mainstream talking points. Uh, you know, when you have the the people who uh, uh, underneath them, I mean, not even just the politicians, but staffers uh, and uh, and lower level, you know, the uh, election officials and, and, and people who have been really kind of holding the line for a really long time, uh, uh, you know, moving out, giving up. You know, uh, you, you so you've got the extremists moving in, and you've got the moderates and, and the normies, and uh, you know uh, anyone who doesn't ascribe to those extreme views moving out, and, and eventually, you know that that balance is going to tip. And that balance tips usually on the local level first, because yes. I I kind of remember. Theo, when he was on the show, kind of pointed out to me that, like, I didn't even I, I didn't even think about this, but like school districts, like school boards and school, like <clears throat> things like you wouldn't even think about, like living in a neighborhood have suddenly become super important, like uh, the third district of Denver or whatever, like the, like things that you wouldn't even think about have become this kind of ground for extremist ideas so i wonder school districts have become the grounds again again this was school school boards were the main target of you know those white citizen councils which were more legitimate uh that worked directly with the kkk and um you know other sort of uh uh you know extreme uh white supremacists more extreme sort of groups um uh, against desegregation, you know, they used them in the same way that we're seeing politicians use them now. Uh, and the way that they did this was literally by targeting school boards. Because, I mean, and Lee Atwater, you know, he, the the brilliant but horrible human being that he was, um, you know, the, the Republican strategist, uh, you know, he was uh, hip to this. I mean, when that's why busing and 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 schooling and all and school choice. That's why there's always so much focus on this because there's nothing more precious to people and to a society than their kids. 
you know, even if you don't have kids, uh, you know, the thought that kids could be in danger uh, or, or kids could be, uh, you know, manipulated um, either through history or through grooming, you know, that, that is, that's one of those, those cheat code fear buttons, you know, that gets people involved when they might not otherwise be. Um, and, and, you know, the local levels ha have always been the best place for this kind of entry um, of extremism into uh, politics, um, because it's easier to couch it in, we're doing it for the good of the children, you know, um, and, uh, and it's easier to get just enough people who are only half listening, uh, who go, yeah, you know, I care about my kids. I don't want my kids to feel bad. I don't want my kids to become communists because you taught them about social and emotional learning. You know, it's easy to pull people in that way, just like it's easy for the 4chan culture and those folks to start off with dumb jokes that are a little transgressive and then move uh, people more and more towards that, ex through that extremism funnel. Um and so, yeah, school boards are are the battleground again. I mean, I like this idea that of scale, right? So you political action, you can move up to the federal level, you can move down to the municipal level. And it seems that the conservative movement, at least the far right or whatever you want to call it, is much more effective at building municipal and state power over federal. And then when you veer into the federal level, it's much more that extremism kind of expresses itself as as fundraising, as money. But drawing a circle around it, it's all about incentives, right? So mm. when we talk about political incentives, I guess you can break it down then. Is that right? Or do you, is it really just, we just focus on the federal level because that's going to have the most impact? No. Like, explore no, that no, for no. us. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, God, the local level, uh, the local level has has the most impact. And, and I mean, really, a lot of this started, uh, uh, you know, a while ago, um, you know, with the 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 push to ensure that uh, local legislatures at the state level were and not local state legislatures were taken over uh, right before, you know, redistricting and uh, the census and redistricting and all that kind of stuff. You know, they knew if we can take it over at this level, then we and, you know, groups like ALEC that are connected to all kinds of corporations and all kinds of money can pass all of these laws that we really want to go up to the federal level. Um, but but they can pass all of these laws, uh, you know, and, and we can try all this stuff out and we can see what works and what doesn't and where it works and where it doesn't. Um, and, and, you know, uh, and then at the state level, we can redistrict for, uh, for, you know, uh, federal seats, you know, and then change it from that way up. Um, and, and that, that was so dramatically successful, um, that they begin, you know, they, they, in more recent years, we've seen this return to an old playbook where, you you go further down to those local levels because they have a huge impact on your life, but they have a huge impact on your life. They have a lot of connections because everybody that's local meets with all of these other folks and, and um, more and more money is actually kind of, you know, rolling in for these local things too. 
so there, there's networking opportunities, there's money there, there's uh, connections, there's the ability to make laws that kind of, you know, move up uh, uh, once they're proven enough or whatever. Um, but fewer people are paying attention. People, people don't tend to pay attention to what's happening at the local level. So it's easy. <laughs> it, 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 and, 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 and that's, that's why it works. Um, uh, and, and it will work, uh, at, you know, the, the big thing that's, that's not kind of in that old sort of desegregationist, uh, or pro-segregation playbook. Uh, the big difference really is this new push to to have the secretaries of state and the people who uh, control sort of the mechanisms of the elections to, to change that. Um, uh, that's that's a little bit newer, but it's also kind of an extension of, you know, uh, the the voter ID. And I mean, which is, of course, an extension of Jim Crow type of stuff, you know, the voter restrictions, the um uh, the gerrymandering, all, all, all of this is part of a multi-year campaign um, that is that is well-funded and um, well-planned, um, and and needs needs to be called out by uh, particularly because it, obviously it's not going to have any any impact if it's a, a lefty that's calling it out it needs to be called out um and, and by you know uh republicans that are tired of this republicans that are you know real uh that really believe in democracy you know that are fed up um and and they when they call it out have to be supported by other republicans that's the only way that this is going that's going to kind of interrupt this narrative um and it's not happening yet. And that I, makes me nervous. I find that interesting that you, that in order for an extremist movement to fail, we need somebody in the in-group to kind of throw it back in their face, sort of like exactly. the bulwark or something. But I mean- or, <clears throat> or to provide a reasonable alternative. Correct. And I mean, I, I mean, I, I guess the my, my argument there, or my pushback there would be, you know, the those people in the in-group that we kind of rely on to push back, they didn't have a problem with, you know, Barry Goldwater being pro-states rights, which was code for let's maintain Jim Crow and segregation and be of against course. civil rights. You know, they weren't against Lee Atwater saying that really infamous quote um, that I will not repeat here, but it's. It's a lot bad. of n-words a lot of, <laughs> lot of n-words um it's not it's on the dog whistle wikipedia page though in case you're interested then you can look it up <laughs> yourself but i mean like how much do we rely on the inner in-group to reject the extreme out-group or i missed that up uh how much do we rely on the moderate in-group to re reject the extreme in-group because it seems like the in-group, you know, the, they've accepted, you know, Lee Atwater, they've accepted Pat Buchanan to a degree, they've accepted uh, the Bush GOP when he ran against John McCain and, you know, the dog whistle of a, a secret black baby, you know, they've accepted all that. It's only when Trump came and kind of, instead of a dog whistle, it became a ska band, uh, a, <laughs> a, a trombone of racism, a trombone section of racism. Um, sorry. 
So I need to mute myself because I keep laughing. Oh. I, I'm trying to figure out what what is stronger than a dog whistle and louder than a dog whistle, but still uh, something you toot, I guess. Um, but I guess like like thematically, like do we really have to rely on a modern no. group? No, okay. <laughs> that's part Sorry. of our problem. That is way part of our problem. We keep hoping that people will save us and like rise up and do it. And that never happens. That never comes. Like well, a lot of the institutions that did it in the past aren't doing it anymore. Sorry, I jumped in. My bad. You go first. <laughs> no, 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 please. Like you're expecting courage and conviction when people are exhausted and like your average friend who's not immersed in this stuff for a living says things like, I can't even read the news anymore. It is it is too traumatic to read the news. Right. Like they're valid in that. It is traumatic, right? Mm -hmm. Imagine the people who routinely subject themselves and what they must be going through to continue this work. And do they have enough bandwidth at the end of the day to stand up and fight? It's like when you ask educators, um, I was talking to someone at UNR about this when I was uh, consulting for de-escalation efforts uh, in relation to Charlie Kirk's culture war tour. And, um, you know, I said, educators often have like, four or five separate jobs that they never like fully signed up for but are nevertheless expected to do and when you want them to engage in things that are pro-social as leaders crafting the next generation or inspiring the next generation of people it can often feel like oh wow this is another thing I have to do and even the most pro-social person has a limit I think one of the things and this is why I founded Glitter Pill LLC is that, you know, labor exploitation across different industries is making us less innovative, less adaptable, and it is taking the fight out of us. In order to bring the fight back, you need to properly support the people that are willing to engage in it because many are not. And the ones that would otherwise have the bandwidth are falling into tropes of martyrdom that they should always be sacrificing, that should, they should always be suffering because that means they're doing something. It yeah. doesn't do anything. And that's a really hard, talk about changing culture. That's mm -hmm. a really hard cultural shift to make. And uh, you can see, like, I don't know, my Twitter's a hellscape right now. But like, <laughs> uh, this really strong reaction to the idea that like, martyrdom in activism, in social justice research and affecting genuine change uh has been the standard and when you push back it's like the weight of the institutions exploiting your labor collapses upon you so the more people can talk about that the more people can move beyond into actually addressing change but you're going to have people that like you can't fault them if they're doing way more than they should have ever be been asked to do and and you're saying can you do this one other thing it doesn't matter how good it is right and you can't shame them into doing it especially if they're exhausted it's kind of abusive if you do that to people yeah. right and you know like um as someone who'd rather affect change than be popular in this space like uh we have to acknowledge what we do to ourselves on a regular basis in pursuit of affecting change because it is not sustainable in any way, shape, or form. And um, that is a much more difficult conversation to have sometimes. Yeah. Uh, 
Uh, but it needs to happen. I hope that Glitter Pill can be a part of affecting that change and fostering that dialogue because it's it's what needs to happen to give people their fight back. I mean, you know, uh, it, that's that's one of the the primary uh, mechanisms that cults use to control people is they work them so hard that they don't have enough time to to think or do anything else. Uh, and and we have a culture that is, uh, you know, a, a work culture and, a, you know, corporate culture that is continuously, you know, uh, bleeding us dry. So there's no time for anything else. You know, it, it, you can't have a, any kind of work-life balance if you're doing your job and then your part-time job or your secondary full-time job you're not getting paid for is fighting against these powerful groups that are, are, you know, exploiting people, you know? Um, and, and so we have these institutions that in the past have, have kind of, you know, said, okay, well, here's where we, we draw the line. And uh, a lot of them have been corrupted. You know, I mean, the Supreme court is a really good example. Um, uh, to the degree that that a lot of our guardrails are gone and um you know I, I think you really are onto something about the fact that we need to have sustainable lives where we can you know do a reasonable amount of work be reasonably productive uh without having to sacrifice everything to the point that um you know by the end of the day we're all spent you know, and that goes specifically for people who are working for change and people who are activists, but it also goes for just the average Joe and Jill and 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 just the average folks, right? You know, if 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 all you can do is work all the time, I mean, that's why we see a lot more wealthy people and uh, you know privileged people involved in activism, you know, or college kids who are you know have have a little window of opportunity where they can they can you know be involved in things because uh otherwise you know especially if you're paycheck to paycheck like all of millennials are right now especially i mean everybody i guess really you know there's there's no time for anything else especially to pay attention to local politics right and there's a very classist assumption uh that you know you'll be in the space you can accept unfunded work because you're already independently wealthy. Uh, and uh, when people try to, what's the phrase? Seize the means of their own production. Mm. Uh, they are often hit with the weight of you're greedy, you want too much. When the yeah. reality is, it is a mark of self-respect to say, here's how much I care about this field. I want to do it 5, 10, 20, 30 years from now. This is the only way I see myself doing that. Getting yeah. proper support and genuinely working to make things sustainable. That's a hard, hard conversation to have. Because you and I, Shardon, like, I don't I don't know how you grew up, Sina, or if you're open to sharing, but, like, we both grew up working class, right? Yeah. Pretty much. I mean, definitely. Uh, I, you know, lower middle. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Working class, yeah, yeah, Lord, working class is the same thing. <laughs> like, I, I see it in an analysis, too. You try to get to, like, the practical applications because that's mm. the important thing. And it can be super fun and indulgent. I had those moments, too, when you get all abstract and up in the weeds and, you know, like, uh, did did this person stab this person in a Foucauldian way? Or, you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, like, but but the reality is, what 
what is the value of education if you can't make it practical? At least that's the perspective that many working class people have. And mm -hmm. some people have never um, had the opportunity to adopt that perspective because things have remained in the abstract theor theoretical realm and activism mm -hmm. can be optional. So like if there is a way to bridge across different class divides to affect change, I, I think like valuing your time and recognizing when internalized capitalism creeps up like do you feel guilty for taking rest or like you're taking away from something like that is internalized capitalism it doesn't matter where what level or where on scale you are but hopefully glitter pill and other organizations can help start creating more dialogue to get people to consider like the ways that we operate and move in these spaces are not sustainable they're harmful mm -hmm. to us and they're they taking are. the fight out of us Indeed. So I think uh, we've covered a lot today. And so yes. as always, uh, we like to end the show with the legendary last question, which is um, give us something to think about, something to chew on. Uh, it can be anything. So it, it can be just a sentence, just a word. If you're wanting to be mystical like that, I guess um, it could be another point. But it's always something for me as the interviewer and then the audience to kind of walk away from to think about. Um, and then I will start with you, uh, Chardon. Oh, Rosebud. No, um, <laughs> I didn't know I was going first. <laughs> um, I would say that the thing that will uh, keep us from succeeding in making this world a better place um, is going to be, you know, the, this, you know, lack of empathy that we have for other people, this unwillingness to, to, to try and put ourselves in other people's shoes. Um, uh, this willingness to try and and you know uh, just just have concern for uh, uh, other people in this world um and it really didn't come out the way i wanted it to and if you I mean, cut that if you want but uh <laughs> i mean i i mean I, we we definitely i mean we see we are in a society that sees uh, niceness and empathy and concern for others as weakness. We're in a society that uh, that mistakes those things that the and and and, and values uh, people who are are you know horrible people, um, people that don't care about other people and. And that's dehumanizing to us all, I guess. I wish I'd thought about that more first. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Samantha? I'd say you're worth more than... You are inherently worthy of love, community, support, care, 
And none of that is contingent on your ability to produce for the market. You are deserving of that, whether you do nothing by virtue of you being a human being. And there should be no shame around the shared sense of humanity of having needs, wants, desires for community, belonging, and uh, the ways that we self-negate in this space are deeply unhealthy and it just takes a little bit of courage to confront the ways that we recreate unsustainable systems for others and in our own personal lives we're entitled to have happy supportive creative lives outside of this work it's part of what makes us innovative and adaptable and if anyone ever tells you that you don't deserve that or that it's greedy or selfish, they have a lot more inner work to be done. Like my mentor said, um, the reflection is only as good as the surface doing the reflecting. Wise words. That was uh, Samantha and Chardon. Uh, make sure to check out Glitter Pill LLC. They do fantastic work. Um, I can't compliment them more. Uh, thank you for being guests on the show. Thank you so much for having us. Of course. Thank you, Fina. It's a pleasure. This was fun.